Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm Tim Cronin. We're here today with John Blumberg. Hi, John. Hello. Nice to be here. John, you are the author of Persuasion Science for Trial Lawyers, a book you published in January 2022. And the reason we know you is you reached out to us in March and told us about your book and invited us to talk to you about your book on this podcast. Well, here you are. Again, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. I think that there's a lot to talk about. Good. Would you give us a little thumbnail of the kinds of cases you handle now and maybe a bit about your career? Sure. I'll pack 45 years into 45 seconds. <laughs> I've been a trial lawyer practicing in Southern California since 1976. I handle primarily uh, tort cases on behalf of plaintiffs. I specialize in medical malpractice and legal malpractice cases. I'm a member of ABOTA and the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys and uh, have served on the national boards of both organizations. I'm an active trial lawyer, and in fact, I start my next trial in two days. All right. Let's talk about your book. How did it come to be? Well, the book had its genesis in losing. And what I mean by that is when I felt that the facts of my case practically compelled a verdict in my client's favor and the jury felt otherwise and handed me an adverse verdict. I'm pretty introspective about things, and I thought about all the things I might have done wrong. It would have been easy just to say the jurors were all stupid and didn't pay attention, because at that point, I wanted to believe that decisions are the result of logic and common sense and critical thinking. But I felt something else was going on. So I started reading and studying about how people make decisions. And over a period of probably 10 years, putting the pieces together, it dawned on me that jurors in general, and people in particular, don't think critically as a natural reaction to getting information. They rely on biases. There are things that get in the way of understanding. And it occurred to me that trial lawyers need to understand this in order to be able to communicate because what are trial lawyers supposed to do? We're supposed to communicate. And if we're not communicating, we're not being persuasive. Give us a bit more information on how you gathered your information. It started out with a book that I read probably 12 years ago called How We Decide by Jonah Lehrer. And that was a really eye-opening view into all of the things that affect decision-making. It wasn't particularized for lawyers, it was just in general. And that led to another book. And then I started thinking that the source material for these books are academic articles that are published in peer-reviewed journals. So I started reading the actual academic articles in political science journals, psychology journals, interestingly enough, marketing journals. During this process, it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. I kept getting new pieces of information and putting them into this puzzle to make this picture. And when the picture was complete, I said to myself, you know, I ought to write a book about this. But being a busy trial lawyer, 
I didn't exactly have a lot of time. And this is where one of the only good things about the COVID shutdown came into play. Because when I had to shutter my office for several months and work from home, I had time on my hands. <laughs> and I used that time to write the book. I notice at one point in your book, you talk about that phrase you see at the bottom of an affidavit sometimes, further affiant saith not. And you took a swipe at that rightfully so. And it reminded me of a theme that seems to come up in your book over and over. A lot of times we do, or at least young lawyers especially do things because they were told that's how you do it. We learn by anecdotal method. And it seems like that does come up repeatedly in your book that you can't just do things because that's the way other people have done them. You're absolutely right. We do things because they've either always been done that way or because somebody told us to do it, but we don't understand why. We just do it. And so there are some things that are good about anecdotal knowledge and behavior. But if we can't answer the question, why am I doing it this way, then we aren't understanding what we're doing. And so the purpose of the book wasn't to turn a bunch of law geeks into scientists. In fact, it was the opposite. It was to say, look, there's science out here. I'll do the heavy lifting. I'll translate this science into how it applies to what we have to know. And then let's take another look at what we're doing. And so, yes, anecdotal practice is good for a beginner when you don't know what else to do. You know, like, how am I supposed to start a deposition? How am I supposed to finish a deposition? How am I supposed to write a letter or plead a complaint? But at some point, you have to break away and ask yourself, why am I doing this? In fact, in my office, my staff knows that there is one thing that's forbidden, and that is to ever tell me, well, but that's the way we've always done it. So how often do you think of the various principles that you learned over the last dozen years or so? Is it once in a while thing where you step back and look at something intentionally? Or do you think that you have ingrained some of these ideas into your you know, hour to hour practice? Probably a little of both. Yesterday, a colleague asked me to watch his opening statement in a medical malpractice case. And so I was sitting in the audience section of the courtroom listening to his opening statement and thinking of all the things he was doing that violated the principles that I had studied and written about. Every time that I approach a case and I'm putting it together for trial, I go back to the things I wrote about. In fact, I did an audio book of my book and I listened to it before a trial. And I'll hear something and I'll think to myself, that's a good idea. I should do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I apply this not just in trials, but I apply it in my communications with opposing counsel. I apply it in my communications with my clients. It applies across the board. You were kind enough to do some homework before this interview. I'd ask you to think of five of your favorite points in the book, and you've come up with five. Number one, how jurors learn and remember. Could you tell us your thoughts on that? Sure. The point how jurors learn and remember has to do with how people receive, learn, and remember information. Persuasion can only occur if people remember what it is that you've said. But simply saying it is not persuasive. There's an actual process that occurs for information to be learned. Now, the interesting part of this is the end result, and the end result is learned. Once something is learned, 
it's assumed by our brains to be true. I'm going to say that again. Once something is learned, it is assumed by our brains to be true. We're not going to remember things that aren't true so that we can rely on something that's not true when we access our memories. So how do you create that learning? It turns out that there is a science of education. And the science of education goes through this process of what has to happen before something is learned. So it's pretty important to present information in our cases in a way that's consistent with how jurors, who are just ordinary folks, are able to learn. So we start out with three enormously important points, and that is, number one, understanding. Number two is processing. And then number three is retrieval. So let me spend a minute on each. In order for information to be learned, it has to be understood. You are throwing dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of words at jurors who don't know anything about your case. Now, you know it intimately because you've been living with it for so long. But the jurors are hearing the story. They're hearing the technical stuff. It might be medicine. It might be engineering. It might be unfamiliar concepts. As soon as you use a word or a phrase that's not understood, then the brain can't do anything with it. They haven't understood a point, And so that's where the persuasion ends. There's a big gap there. So you have to make sure that the jurors understand what it is that you're saying. And then you have to allow time for the jurors to process what they've just heard. It's like trying to take a sip of water out of a fire hydrant. Most lawyers present information so fast and so complicated and so jam-packed that jurors are not going to be able to process it. And so what's very, very important, in fact, one of the most important parts of persuasion and learning is to slow down. If we don't slow down, if we don't pause, then the brain doesn't have time to think about what it is you've said. Consider when you're reading a book, you'll read something and you'll stop and you'll say, hmm, that's interesting. And you think about it for a second and then you continue on. That's how we learn. There's an educational scientist who said that what we remember is that which we thought about. That which we remember is that which we thought about. And so if you don't give the jurors an opportunity to think about what you just said, there's less time for them to be able to process it. And if it's not processed, it's not going to be stored in long-term memory. And if it's not in long-term memory, guess what? They're not going to remember it. They haven't learned it. This concept, and this is why I put the chapter on the science of jury education early in the book, because everything that follows is based and built on that fundamental principle. So I think that when we talk about the science of persuasion, sometimes it's not the words that we use, but the speed and the pauses. Now, those of you who are musicians might have heard the phrase that music is not based on the notes. Music is based on the pauses between the notes. 
And so even though it's fairly uncomfortable for lawyers to stand in a courtroom and not say anything and hear silence, that's the key to allowing jurors to think about what we just said. And so make a point. Stop for a second. Move on. You don't have to fill every moment with sound. By slowing down and allowing jurors to think about what you've said, you have allowed them to process the information, and processed information then goes into long-term memory. Now, one last thing. Once it's in long-term memory, you've primed the brain because now there is something to refer to the next time they're exposed to it. So the next time the subject comes up, the jurors have to go someplace to try to figure out, okay, is this something I understand? If it's in long-term memory, they access it. And because it's in long-term memory, it has the veneer of truth. And so we're now focusing on what our primary responsibility is, and that is to try to get jurors to believe that what we say is true. And so that's why it's so important to understand how jurors learn and remember. Now, everything else that I'm going to be talking about is going to go back to that first principle, and that is, how do they learn? How do they remember? Because that's the what, and most of the rest of the book is the how. How do we do it? All right. So that probably leads naturally to your second point. Simplicity sells, complexity crashes. The reason I phrased it like that is because, first of all, simplicity or simplifying information is enormously important. The brain has limitations, not jurors' brains, everybody's brains. Einstein's brain, everybody's brain has limitations. If you try to lift weights, for example, and you're staring at a 50-pound weight, you look at it, and if you're not a competitive weightlifter, you're going to say, that's heavier than I really want to expend the energy to lift. When the brain's confronted with something that appears to be difficult, the brain goes into a mode where if brains could talk, it would say, that's too much work. I'm going to see if there's a way to avoid having to do that. So when something is presented that appears to be complex or complicated, I call it the squint test. You know, when you're looking at something and it's really hard and you squint at it and you're thinking, this is really hard. Jurors' brains, everybody's brains, will look for an easy way out. And the easy way out means they're going to resort to a stereotype or they're just going to avoid thinking about it at all. If you can make it appear to be easy to understand, it will be more likely perceived to be true. If you make it more difficult to understand, that is complex, people will not want to devote the required mental energy to understand it. When I said simplicity sells, that's really a technique, alliteration. People remember alliteration. That is something, two words or three words that start with the same letter. And so when I said simplicity sells, that's easier to remember than you must make things as simple as possible. That's a whole bunch of words, but you can remember simplicity sells and complexity crashes, an alliterative technique that the brain says, oh, that's easy. I get that. But there's two other points that are important. 
One of those points is brain fatigue, and the other is cognitive overload. So when I say cognitive, that's just a fancy way of talking about thinking. So let's talk about those two things. Fatigue. Going back to the weightlifting example that I used earlier, if you are lifting a weight and you're doing repetitions, at some point, your muscle is going to say, I'm tired. I can't lift anymore. Now, does that mean that you really can't lift anymore? No, you probably can, but it's going to be really difficult. The brain has to be treated like a muscle. It gets tired. And so here are jurors that are being absolutely inundated with facts and figures and arguments and witnesses and documents. You think their brains aren't getting tired? A tired brain is not going to be willing to do the hard work of critical thinking. So that's cognitive fatigue. Now, that loops back to how do we avoid that? And we avoid that by simplifying and making it easy for the brain to make decisions. Now, the second part is cognitive overload. And the example that I like to use is if you can visualize a pitcher of water in your left hand and a drinking glass in your right hand. So you're visualizing that. Start pouring the pitcher of water into the glass. And when the glass is full, there's still all of this liquid in the pitcher. And you keep pouring. It's not going to fit in the glass. You can keep pouring, saying, I have to put all of the contents of the pitcher into the glass, but the glass is not going to hold it all. That's what we do when we're presenting facts to a jury. We have a pitcher full of information, and we need to pour it into the juror's brains. But the juror's brains aren't the size of the pitcher. They're the size of the drinking glass. And so we can say quite earnestly, but these are all important facts. I need to present them to the jury. Well, that might be true, but they can't comprehend it because it's too much. It's overloaded. And when the brain gets overloaded, guess what it does? It shuts down. And jurors will be looking at you. They may even be smiling and nodding, but it's not going to stay in their brain. It's not going to be processed. It's not going to be remembered. And so we're pouring more information into their heads than their heads can retain or contain. So how do we deal with that? Well, there are numerous techniques for being able to do that. But then an overarching thing that we have to remember is that not every fact in a case is important. As lawyers, we end up creating documents that are 10 pages long when we could probably fit it onto one page, but we don't want to leave anything out. And nor does every fact have to be thrown at the jury right at the beginning. Right. You got to figure out what you need to give them to try to get a basic understanding of what the case is about so they have a baseline and then you can fill more things in later. Right. Absolutely. In fact, that's a really important technique. I was watching this opening statement yesterday and I was just thinking to myself, this lawyer who's doing the opening statement has tried to pack every fact in the case into his opening statement. The jurors needed to know just enough to get a sense of whether they liked your case, whether they could identify or be offended by or somehow comprehend and put a spin or what I like to say is you create the lens through which you want the jury to see the case. 
And you don't do it with an overwhelming amount of facts. You do it by creating a frame and a theme. And it doesn't take a half hour. In fact, if you've passed the half hour point, you're just pouring information into their heads that's not staying there. You know, there's an adage, know your audience. And it seems like your first two points do go to that idea, but in a deeper way than normal. Know your audience in terms of their cognitive limitations, or else you're just wasting words up there. I see your point three might be a way to build upon how to get things done, creating belief by outline and repetition. Could you talk about that, please? Sure. Remember, I started out by talking about how jurors learn and remember, and then we talked about simplicity cells and complexity crashes. How do we then put our case together so that we are being persuasive, and you can't be persuasive unless people are accepting your information? So outline and repetition. Let me start with repetition first. If something is said one time and one time only, it is not persuasive. If something is repeated three times, there is a higher likelihood that it's going to be remembered and accessed. So let me talk about this framework. There's science behind it, but the application of it is relatively easy. The first time someone hears something, it's unfamiliar. And so they think about it, they process it, it goes into long-term memory where it's there as a reference. It's not persuasive yet, it's just there as a reference. The second time that point comes up, now they're hearing it again, and it goes through the processing, and in the processing, your brain says, oh yeah, I remember that, I heard that before. Why? Because it's in long-term memory. The third time that it's presented, it goes almost immediately from hearing it to the belief that it is accurate and true. Why? Because it's now solid in long-term memory. It has been what's called encoded, E-N-C-O-D-E-D, encoded. It's etched in memory and easily accessible. Repeating something three times has a greater chance of being remembered and persuasive than if you say the same thing using different words three times. Let's go to the um, famous O.J. Simpson, Johnny Cochran statement, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. That is something that has been repeated and repeated, and everybody remembers that. And so the rhyme is something else that we can use as a technique. If you can make your theme rhyme, and then you say it throughout your case, in your opening statement, when you're questioning a witness, in your final argument. So let's say it has to do with a delayed diagnosis. If she had been treated in time, she would have been fine. And then you say it in your opening statement. You ask it of perhaps your medical witness. You use it in your final argument. It is a rhyme. It has been repeated. And if the jurors then remember that, what's this case about? If she'd been treated in time, she would have been fine. And so you've boiled down repetition. So repeating something makes it more persuasive. Now, what about the outline part? Let's say you're examining an expert witness. Doctor, I understand that you have arrived at opinions about this case. Answer, yes, I have. Very briefly, can you state what the opinions are? And then we'll come back and explore each one. And the expert says, sure. 
my first opinion is this, my second opinion is this, my third opinion is this. Okay, let's go back and explore the first one. So what have we done here? We've created an outline. So the first time the jurors hear what the opinion is, let's say opinion number one, they're trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with this? They think about it, they process it, they put it into their working memory because it's just not enough to go into long-term memory yet. Then they hear it again when it's going into more detail. Because you've outlined it the first time around, the jurors are not now hearing this for the first time. There is some familiarity. You've primed their brains to be able to remember and to have familiarity with that point. Now, how do you do it, for example, with a lay witness, say your client? Let's say you represent the plaintiff. You can also do the same outline. You can say, can you tell us what your job title was? And we'll get into the details later. Well, my job title was, I was the supervisor of education. Okay. And where did you work? Uh, I worked at the public school district. And what were you doing on this day when you were injured? I was doing this little thing. By doing this, you aren't overwhelming the jurors with too much information all at once. What you're doing is you're priming their brain by giving a little bit of information first then coming back around and filling it in. And the effect of this is that it becomes easy to access in the brain. We've heard this before. We're not hearing it for the first time. This is, the brain says, going to be easier to process because I'm familiar with it already. Why? Because you've created this outline. Same thing when you're doing an opening statement. Same thing when you're doing a final argument. You create the outline by just touching on the points and then going back and then filling in the detail. So, John, your fourth point, persuading liberals and conservatives. I'm hoping that you are going to help us resolve the national cultural divide. Here. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Good luck. Glad you asked. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that. You know, we could have solved this problem a long time ago. I'm just kidding. There is an actor, Colin Firth. English actor. I think he won an Academy Award for the King's Speech. It turns out that he's an intellectual of sorts, and he funded an academic study into brain science. And he was asked, well, why did you do that? And what he said was, I want to figure out what's biologically wrong with people who don't agree with me. And that was a funny way of saying, how come people don't agree with me when I know that my view of things is the accurate view? It turns out, as a result of this study, that there wasn't anything biologically wrong with people that didn't agree with his worldview. It was that people's brains are hardwired to act in certain ways to accept information as true or reject it. And so this turned out to be one of the most interesting things that I wrote about. I touched on it in a couple of chapters, and then I devoted an entire chapter to it. And that is, how do you persuade people who see the world so differently? We like to think that our view of the world is the correct view. And as trial lawyers, we think we're pretty smart. And that if we were just able to explain to people what our case is about, that they will be persuaded because this is how they should see the world. 
The trouble is that not everyone sees the world the way we do. And so how do we persuade both liberals and conservatives? There's no easy answer. It's going to take work. And that work is understanding what the values are of conservatives and what the values are of liberals and trying to find a way to present your case so it is consistent with the values of both. In order to be able to do that, you have to go back and understand how it is that we are the descendants of early humans. Early humans were confronted with all kinds of risks and bad outcomes. Neighboring tribes might come in and murder them. They may eat something and get sick and die. They may get a disease. They may try something new and it creates a disaster. And so early man was by necessity suspicious, afraid of change, and territorial. This was a good thing because we are the descendants of the people who had those attributes. The people who didn't have those attributes don't have descendants because they didn't survive. So all of us have within us some of this paranoia, suspicion, unwillingness to try new things, tribalism. It exists in all of us. It turns out that those who are more inclined to be conservative or they have conservative attributes have a greater dose of these attributes than people who are more moderate or liberal. It doesn't mean that they're bad people, nor does it mean that those who aren't suspicious, aren't territorial, aren't tribal, are bad people. They just see the world differently. So how do you take this mix of how people see the world to be able to create a persuasive case? How do you persuade both liberals and conservatives? Well, this is where you're asking me to put a 10-pound ham into a 5-pound container, but I'm going to do it as succinctly as I can. Here's the interesting part. By appealing to conservative values, you don't turn off the liberals because those who are more liberal won't reject that which is framed in a conservative value because it can be accepted by liberals. But if you present something in a way that does not resonate with conservatives, it will be rejected. So you have to understand, and this is what I spent a bunch of time in my book doing, here are the conservative values. Here is what resonates with conservatives. So for example, there is more favorability to someone who is in your group, an in-group that you can identify with. And so you have to make your client like a member of the in-group. I'm not talking about being at the cool kids table. I'm talking about having certain attributes that conservatives find societally valuable, that you aren't creating a burden on the tribe, that you are taking responsibility for what you do, that you are following society's rules. These are things that are important to people who have more conservative values. So you make your client a member of the in-group. They lived their life according to the rules. It's the other side that didn't follow the rules. And so when we look at how do you persuade a conservative, you have to first understand what's important. 
And I spend a lot of time in a couple of the chapters of the book talking about understanding that. Because when you're standing in front of the jury, you don't know what their values are. And so you have to present it in a way that is consistent with how conservatives value the world and not inconsistent with how liberals value the world. John, if we could move on to our final point, Jedi mind tricks, preventing the brain from making counter arguments. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I call it Jedi mind tricks because it is kind of a mind trick. There are some techniques. One is called story and the other is called metaphor. Let's start with story. When we hear facts that are just disembodied facts, here's a fact, next fact, next fact, next fact. Every time a person hears what is purported to be a fact, the brain is testing whether it's true or not. It's making counter arguments. The brain will make counter arguments to every fact that you put out there. So for example, the plaintiff stepped into the crosswalk and was hit by a car. The brain is saying, well, why wasn't the plaintiff more careful? Why didn't the plaintiff look both ways? You know, what are all the reasons that we can blame the plaintiff for this? Now, that's not because they don't like plaintiffs. It's because that's how the brain processes information. Well, some of them don't like plaintiffs. <laughs> okay, granted. Now, you notice that, you know, in everything that I've been talking about, I haven't been talking about it from necessarily a plaintiff's perspective, right. although I'm a plaintiff's lawyer because it applies across the board. People make counter-arguments. How do you prevent the brain from making counter-arguments? If you put together your facts into a story, what occurs is that the brain goes into a different mode. Let me use an example. Let's say you go to see a play, a live play, or even a movie, and there are actors, and the actors are reciting lines they have memorized. When you're watching the story that's unfolding, you're not thinking, oh, those are just actors who are reciting lines. You are drawn in. It is called the story world. You are drawn into the story. There's a really interesting theory about why the brain does not make counter arguments when they are drawn into a story. And one is that in order to imagine everything that's going on, it takes a lot of brain power. And so much is being used to create this illusion of the story that there aren't resources available in the brain to be able to make a counter argument because they're so drawn into the story. So by creating a story rather than simply facts, you prevent the listener from making counter arguments. The, well, how come? And what about? And why didn't she? And what about this other thing? You create the story. And by creating it as a story, it is accepted as true. And so that's point number one. Create a story. Don't just tell the jury about facts. In your opening statement, create the story. In your final argument, create the story. Your expert witness, if you work with them, can create a story where people are transported, I'll call it, into the movie. And as a part of the movie, they're not questioning what's going on. They're completely involved. So that's Jedi trick number one. 
Jedi mind trick number two is metaphor. Now, what's a metaphor? You have to understand first what an analogy is. An analogy is when you describe one thing in terms of another. This is like that. The veins are like pipes that carry water in your house. That is an analogy. Remember at the beginning, I was talking about how you can create a memory so that it's easily understood and accessed. When you say this is like that, the this may be something unfamiliar, but the that is familiar. What do veins do? I don't know. I didn't go to medical school. Oh, the veins are like the pipes in your house. Oh, I know what that is. So it makes things understood. But metaphor is when you describe one thing as another thing. Here's an example. The nursing home was a prison. If you said the nursing home was like a prison, that's an analogy. Okay, so we have the two of those things that we're understanding. If you describe something like an analogy, the nursing home was like a prison, what's the brain doing? The brain is searching for all the reasons that it isn't. Well, it's not like a prison. There aren't prison guards. They're not wearing orange jumpsuits. They're not getting their food slid through an opening in the cell. The brain's thinking of all the reasons that it's not like that. If you describe the nursing home as a prison, the brain is now looking for all of the reasons that it is a prison. Oh, yeah, it sort of is. You know, you can't eat what you want and you can't go someplace just because, you know, you want to leave and you have to stay in your bed and people bring stuff to you and you have your freedom taken away. So the brain is looking for all of the things that make it a prison instead of looking at all of the things that make it not like a prison. So if you describe a speeding car, if you say the car was like a bullet, well, the brain's thinking of all the reasons it's not like a bullet. But if you say the car was a bullet, now you're thinking of all the reasons that it is or that it's like that. Describing things in these two different ways has an enormous difference in how the brain is going to be processing it. So if you describe something in terms of a metaphor, the brain is looking for all the reasons that that's true rather than looking for all of the reasons that it's not. And so story and metaphor are two of what I call the Jedi mind tricks that prevent the brain from making counter arguments. You know, I've tried a lot of cases and felt like, you know, the jury's not going to follow you down the road you want them to. If it seems like you're making their job too hard, you have to keep it simple. Be plain spoken. Take your time. Don't overwhelm. Repeat and circle back to points. One thing we didn't talk about from your book is engage multiple senses with pictures, slides, videos, graphs. You have to keep them entertained, especially in today's day and age. I think people are processing and learning information differently Try to present your case consistent with the values of people from different perspectives. Use stories and metaphors to make jurors more likely to accept your propositions. I probably simplified a lot of what you're talking about a little bit too much, but I just wanted to give kind of my impression of a recap of what we talked about. And we encourage our listeners to check out your book. And there's a lot more content within it and good information in it than you were able to explain today. But I think you did a good job of kind of outlining your main points. Thank you. And uh, there's a lot of information about the book on my website, which is persuasion-science.com. Persuasion-science.com. There's a link to buying the book. 
There's um, blogs that I have written that go into more detail on subjects that I've thought more about since the book was published. And so that's a good place to start. You know, the more we think about how to take our audience's ability to understand into consideration, the more persuasive we're going to be. Yep. Nice way to wrap it up. John, thank you so much. I really appreciate your giving me the opportunity to have this conversation. Oh, it was our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for joining us. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm Tim Cronin. And we'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.